Lesson 8. We're on Lesson 8, and of course, this is the, the whole idea is tourist trap, but the idea is contentment. And so, just by way of review, we looked at the first thing was admonitions for contentment, and we said, first of all, beware of covetousness. That's one thing that we would never, most of us would never put on a, you know, high on our list of big sins, but it's something that we all deal with at some point in our lives, mostly, and something that can really derail uh, our lives. And then the second thing he said is avoid comparisons. And that's the whole idea of covetousness. What the Bible talks about is do not, thou shalt not covet, right? Wanting something that's beyond your reach. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't try to make yourself better. It doesn't mean that you can't, um, you, know, you know, try to get a better job or any of those things. But um, it's, it's basically... And we, we talked about the whole idea of social media, really throwing that whole thing off because it's so easy to look at what everybody else has on social media and, and uh, want what they have and, you know, not be able to have it. And that's, that's what covetousness is. And so we ended last week by talking about the values of contentment. And we said, first of all, that you have to focus on the eternal over the temporal. Focus on the eternal over the temporal. And we finished up with all of that, but of course, you know, focusing on the eternal allows us to lay up treasures in heaven instead of, you know, worrying about what we have here on this earth. And of course, I've said this many times before, you, you can't take it with you when you go, but you sure can send it on ahead. And that's exactly what putting the eternal over the temporal is all about. But the second thing, the second way to, uh, to avoid covetousness and, and, and to, uh, to value contentment is to be, the second thing, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Now, Christian contentment not only frees me from fleeting loves, things that are going to go away, uh, but it teaches me to trust in the Lord as my provider. That's what contentment does. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that today, but a, a godly person learns to live in a trusting relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Depend on Him. Trust in Him, not in ourselves. Uh, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And that's, that's hard to do. I mean, it, it's, it's, imagine if somebody were to blindfold you and tell you, all right, this is the direction that you go. You know, there's a lot of different pitfalls here. There's a lot of holes. I don't want you to step in one because you could fall a long way down, but just follow the sound of my voice. I'll tell you where to go. All right? I mean, that's, whoa, you're, you're expecting me to trust you that much? But that's, that's what God does with us, right? We can't see past today. We can't see, you know, what's going to happen in the future. We can't see the future. And so essentially, we're walking through life with a blindfold on, and there's lots of pitfalls and lots of ways that we can stumble and fall. And he says, I'm going to guide you. Follow me. Here's, here's how you do it. Follow my voice. Listen to, listen to what I'm telling you. And we have to go through life that way, but that's exactly what the Bible says. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's what it's all about. And so perhaps the best biblical example of this is the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 4, you can turn there if you want to. You do have it there in your, in your book. But Philippians chapter 4, Paul thanked the church at Philippi um, for their, their generous gift in supporting him. Um, he wasn't asking for it. He wasn't telling them that that's what they needed to do. Um, and he made that very clear. He made sure that they knew that his ultimate dependence was not on them giving offerings and them doing all this stuff. His ultimate dependence was on God. He says that in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 11. 
Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. See, contentment then is not self-sufficiency. I have all that I need. It's Christ's sufficiency. Uh, God will provide all that I need. That's the difference. I have all, of I, all, the, all that I need versus God will provide all that I need. Self-sufficiency versus Christ-sufficiency. We should be Christ-sufficient, not self-sufficient. And obviously, you ought to be able to make your own way in the world and do all of those kind of things. I'm not, I'm not saying that none of those things matter. They do. But we ought to be depending on, on Christ. And some of the sweetest times of drawing nearer to the Lord and to each other in a marriage can be during times of having great need. You know, uh, the, the thing is, financial difficulties, and we're going to talk about the practices of contentment here in just a minute, and that's where it gets practical. Um, but financial difficulties in a marriage, honestly, can either make the marriage or break the marriage, depending on how you handle those things. Uh, if you look at it, and we talk about this, I think, I think financial difficulties in a marriage is one of the top three reasons that people get divorced. So obviously, when you come to financial difficulties, that can either draw you closer together because you're both trusting in the Lord to take care of your needs, or it can drive a wedge between you and push you so far apart that you end up to the place where you're getting divorced. And that's where it, de that's where it depends on whether we're trying to be self-sufficient or whether we're trying to be Christ-sufficient. And that, that makes all the difference in the world. The world will tell you that trusting the Lord and focusing on eternal values is just empty. There's nothing to it. But in, in reality, the world is full of fractured marriages, the world is full of empty lives, disappointment with unfulfilled dreams, gain isn't everything. Great gain is better. And the Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. So let's get to number three then, practices of contentment. What do contented people do? Well, there's three basic principles of contentment before we get into some of these things. We have to understand those Three basic principles because they, they provide a foundation for contentment. And the first one is ownership. God owns everything, right? That's one of the things, uh, and, and I don't, you know, we don't make a huge deal about that with our kids, but, you know, when they're fighting over a toy or when they're fighting about something or, you know, that, that doesn't belong to you. I bought it. It's mine. You know? I'm letting you use it. You can play with it. You can have it and you can claim it, but you didn't pay for that thing. So, you know, uh, isn't the same thing with our lives. We get so possessive of everything in our life. This is mine. I worked hard for this thing. You can't. No, God owns everything. He gave it to us, and everything that we have is literally on loan from God, right? Psalm 24 and verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein. Technically, I don't own anything. None of it belongs to me because everything that I have belongs to God. So making a conscious decision to, to live by this truth, by giving everything I have to God, helps me to, to better practice what the next principle is, which is stewardship. Stewardship is God has entrusted me to manage assets for him. And that's, this is so foundational to being content with what you have. Because if I see that everything I have is not mine, it belongs to God, he's loaning it to me to manage it for him then that changes our outlook on everything. If you think about, you know, everything that I own is not mine. God 
God owns it. He's letting me use it. Why? For his glory, to better his purposes, to better his kingdom. And if I look at everything that way, then I will be a good steward. Same thing with my children. The Bible is very clear. They're not mine. God's given them to me for a time to use with, to, to do with them what I can for his service. They're his, though. Right? Look at the story of Samuel. Right? She gave him back to God. What, what I do own from an earthly standpoint isn't mine to use as I see fit to advance my own purposes. What I have from an earthly standpoint has been given to me by God for God's glory so that I can use it to better glorify him. That's what stewardship is all about. So as stewards, all God asks of us is faithfulness. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 2, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. You know, a steward, all, all that a steward has to do is manage the assets that he's been entrusted, that, that's been entrusted to him. And that's exactly what God expects of us. We're going to get to that in a little bit more in the whole rest of this um, this point, but let's look at number three. The third, the third foundational element for contentment is provision, because God has promised to meet all of my needs. Right? My God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Uh, what a what a tremendous promise! But we have the freedom to be faithful with what God's entrusted to us, because He's promised that He's going to take care of us. Boy, I can tell you so many stories of ways that God has just provided beyond what you could expect. All right, what, what the Bible says beyond what you could even ask or think. And God's done that in so many ways. Because when you're faithful to him, when you're using what he's given you for his glory, he's going to take care of you. David said what? I've been young and now I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Why is that? Because when you're faithful to use what God has given you, God is faithful to provide. Uh, perhaps the greatest expression of trust in God's provision is giving. Uh, when you give, God gives back. You can, you've heard that many, many times. You can never outgive God. Why is that? Because when you're faithful to give back to God some of the stuff that he's given to us, he's going to keep providing and keep providing and keep providing. So um, it, it was, it was, it's, it's, contentment comes in acknowledging the sacrificial giving that uh, Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So what I want to do for the rest of this time is just to look at, take a closer look at the second principle of stewardship. Because, after all, if we're going to manage what God has entrusted to us in a way that honors him, then we need to know how he would have us use it. So that's what the rest of this point is about. So there are five basic habits that are taught in Scripture that are regarding finances. And boy, these, these, the Bible has something to say about everything. And many times spiritual, many times very practical. And I, and I mentioned this a lot too, that often the things that we look at that are very practical are also very spiritual at the same time. And the way that we handle our finances is a very practical thing, but it's also a very spiritual thing too, because there's so many principles of money in the Bible. So let's look at this. And the first thing is work. Work. God blesses diligent labor. And, and work is the means by which he generally provides for our needs, right? Um, Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 4. The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Look, God does not say, 
I'm going to provide for all of your needs, so just go do nothing. Sit there, and I'll, uh, you know, a bird's going to come drop dollar bills at your doorstep every morning, right? <laughs> doesn't work that way. It'd be nice, right? Just like having a money tree out in the back would be nice, but it doesn't work that way. God tells us to go to work, go provide for a family. I mean, you look, especially in the book of Proverbs, filled with verses about diligence, filled with verses about sluggards, right? Filled with verses about laziness. He's against it. He wants us to get out there and work. And yes, uh, well, then if, if I have to go work for it, then God's not providing for it. No, God is. The same way that God provides healing through doctors, right? <laughs> Just because it was not some miraculous healing where you were sitting there and poof, all of a sudden this disease is gone. God healed your disease, but he used the doctor to do it. And the same thing. God provided for your needs, but he used your abilities and your, you know, your work ethic to provide for your basic needs. Paul admonished the church at Thessalonica that if they wanted physical provision, they better get out and work for it. Look what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Right? You don't work, you don't eat. Biblically speaking, it's the, it's the husband's responsibility to provide for his family through labor, through work. The Bible tells us that a man who doesn't provide for his family is, well, actually the, the term that the Bible uses is worse than an infidel. He says that in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. I mean, that's, that's pretty strong language. But So getting to the, the, the place where we, where we don't have bills, uh, or, I mean, we're, we're always going to have bills. Maybe I should say debt is the word I was looking for. We, we should be living in a place where we don't have debt. And, and certainly you're going to have, you know, maybe a, a house and a car, some big items that <clears throat> takes a long time to pay off or whatever else. Those we should be trying to pay off as well. But <clears throat> credit card debts and all of those things, it just, it ruins, it ruins a family. It ruins contentment because there's so many things that that, it, that, that involves. Which brings us to the second point <clears throat> that is, you know, principles of contentment or um, ways that we can be content, practices of contentment. First of all is work, but the second is to budget. Budget. Um, we've had a budget since we've been married. And I had a budget for years before we got married. My dad started us on this as soon as we were old enough to make $2 an hour. That's what my dad paid me, by the way. I worked for him for I don't know how many summers and you know any other time in between there. $2 an hour, that's what he paid me to work for him. And I don't, even, I don't know if I ever even saw most of that money, but I started, you know, the way that, <clears throat> the, um, so I was, I was working with him and we were working at a house, and this lady said, do you know anybody that can cut grass? I have a mower. I said, I cut grass, <laughs> you know, which I, we cut it all at our house, you know. So she said, all right, well, I'll pay you $8 an hour. $8 an hour when you were making $2 an hour sounded like a million, you know. And, <clears throat> I mean, $8 an hour back in what this was, what, the late 90s, I guess, mid, mid to late 90s, $8 an hour wasn't bad money, you know. Well, <clears throat> she had a friend who also needed yard work done and, and mulching, and then they had a friend who needed it. So I ended up with five or six jobs in this neighborhood. I would ride my bike out there. Um, I was probably 14, 15 years old, and it was, it was probably a good six, eight miles from our house where these people lived. So I would ride my bike there, do that job, ride to the next one, ride to the next one, ride to the next one, and ride home. I mean, I put from, so <clears throat> I think when I was 15, I got a speedometer for my bike for my birthday. Now, my birthday's on June 28th. 
So we were already, you know, well into the summer. I put this speedometer on my bike, and it, it calculated miles. And we went back to school August whatever, you know, like the last week of August usually. By the end of that summer, I had 450 miles on my bike in those, you know, basically two months. I rode that thing everywhere. But I was making $8 an hour, you know, and my dad, you know, he was like, what's the money, burning a hole in your pocket? Save it. Don't spend it, you know. And so he taught us how to set up a budget, <clears throat> you know. And, and by the way, that's one thing that my dad did that was actually very helpful for me too. <clears throat> when I got into seventh grade, he said, Obviously, I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to put food on the table. But you want anything else, you're paying for it. You know, and so here these guys in high school were buying these $100 pairs of basketball shoes, you know, and I'm at Walmart, you know. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know if Walmart was there. Kmart. <clears throat> That's funny because I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail here, but I found a, <clears throat> I found a pair of, and these guys, you know, I was, I was, I was very competitive. And I was hard on shoes and things like that. <clears throat> but most of these guys, you know, they'd buy a new $100 pair of shoes every basketball season, tear them up, you know, wear them outside, whatever else. I found on clearance at Kmart a pair of Warner Brothers basketball shoes that were 15 bucks. And I bought those when I was going into the ninth grade, and I had them until I graduated from high school. <laughs> and the only reason I, well, I, I had to get a new pair my senior year, and the only reason is because they ended up getting so small I couldn't fit my feet in them anymore. And then, because of that, the whole side blew out. But I took care of those things, you know? I learned how to shop at Goodwill. I took care of my stuff. I didn't leave it laying around in the locker room so they can come pick it up and take it to Lost and Found and never see it again, you know? But that's what it did. My dad made us go on a budget. He made us pay for our own stuff. And that's, you know, that, that set the standard for us <clears throat> for the rest of our life. So <clears throat> Jesus pointed out even in Luke chapter 14 and verse 28, Though that a wise businessman is going to count the cost of something before he goes to build it, right? For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? That's budgeting. And that verse is not directly, you know, instructing us to set up a budget necessarily, but the verses that we've already looked at in 1 Timothy do encourage us to live within our means. How do you live within your means? You set up a budget. You know what money you have available to go buy, Right? Um, I mean, that's one of the things that caused the huge housing crisis in 2008. People were buying way above what they could afford, living right on that bubble. And then when they, that bubble burst, they had no way to pay for these houses. I mean, how many houses went into foreclosure in 2008 because people had bought way above what they could afford? They didn't budget. And then, you know, it's, it's just... It's one of those things. Because the husband's supposed to be the leader of the home, and, it's, and, and the husband's responsible for the provision in the home. So it's, it's wise to be, for the husband to be the initiator of that process, the budget process, set up on a budget. Uh, we have an envelope system, you know, every... And, and, I mean, I'm telling you, the peace that comes from having the money there when the bill is due. Uh, you know, most people live out of their checking account, Right? Type it in, how much do I have in my checking account? Okay, good, I can pay that bill, right? But then what about the next bill that comes up that you don't have the money for? So every time we get a paycheck, we cash it, we put the money into each envelope that it goes into, and then when that bill comes due at the end of the month, you don't have to wonder, boy, I hope we have enough in the checking account. It's there because it automatically comes out. And yeah, that means that there's not money to do whatever you feel like doing always uh, because you have bills that have to be paid, but they're taken care of. And it's, there's a lot of peace that comes from having that budget set up. The Bible says in Proverbs 22, verse 7, the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower 
is servant to the lender. Um, <clears throat> part of living within your means includes avoiding debt. I'm telling you, debt is such a crippler, um, marriage or not, but especially in a marriage because, you know, you, you might not be able to avoid it for a large purchase like a home. Obviously, you don't have $150,000, $200,000 sitting around that you can just go buy a house with. But, uh, and, and, and that's a little bit different the way that those things are set up. But don't get in the habit of living off of credit cards because what happens is you end, up, you end up maxing that credit card out and then using another card to pay off that card, and, and you see how high the interest rates are on credit card bills. I'm just blown away by it. We have a credit card. We use it, but we pay it off at the end of every month because the money is there in the budget, and you know we don't buy it unless we have the money there to be able to do it. Plus, you get the points for it and all that stuff. They give you, they give you money back, and why wouldn't you do that? You know, um, But pay it off every month because... I think the interest on these things gets like 22, 25, 29%. You know how much more money you're spending? You're crippling yourself because you're not going to be able to enjoy the things that you want to enjoy because not only are you paying all those credit cards off, you're paying way more than what you actually, you know, the purchase price of all those items that you bought. So um, it just adds that financial strain to your marriage that really could be avoided if you decide you're not going to run up debt on your credit cards. Um, so, uh, you know, sometimes that means that you've got to clip coupons. Sometimes that it means you can only go to places that have sales. Sometimes, I mean, that's what we do mostly, you know. And, and you get used to it. It's fine. It's fine, you know. Um, but that's, that's how to live within a budget, and that is how to have uh, contentment. The third practice of contentment is to give. And giving really should come before budgeting because that should be the first item on your budget list. The Bible tells us that the tithe, that 10% of your income belongs to the Lord, should be given to him first. And there's a lot of people today, there's this new idea going around, I don't even know if it's new, but, but a kind of maybe a renewed idea that the tithing is not in the Bible. God doesn't require us to give 10%. Oh yeah, it talks about that in the Old Testament, but it never says anywhere in the New Testament that, that the tithe is 10%. You know, it's giving, it's not tithing, it's giving. Well, either way, regardless of whether it's tithing or giving, you ought to have a heart to give to God. And if your mindset is, well, not tithe because that's 10%, give. Well, it, then it should be more than 10% because if you look at the principles of giving in the Bible, <laughs> you're supposed to give out of your abundance. You're supposed to give with a cheerful heart. You're supposed to give. So if, if, fine, if you don't want to talk about tithing and talk about giving, but then you're going, you should be giving more than 10%, which you should be anyway. Tithe is what's required. There's, you ever heard the term tithes and offerings, Right? Tithe is, well, 10% automatically belongs to God, and then offerings on top of that. Uh, God's given us so much, we should be more than willing to give back to him. But for the sake of this argument with tithing, the Bible says in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now with, herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and, heaven and pour you out a blessing, there shall not be room enough to receive it. Which I think is funny, because everybody wants to talk about, oh, God's standing up there in heaven with you know, his hands waiting to open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. But then they don't want to talk about the tithe part, you know? Oh, oh, it, those principles apply in the Old Testament, but not the tithing principles, you know? Uh, but beyond the tithe, God blesses generosity. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over shall men give into your bosom. 
For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Boy, that's the whole idea of you can never outgive God. You know, the more you give to God, the more God gives back to you. And I, I hesitate to use this, but this is such a great illustration of the way that God works in our life. We had the Christmas offering, and um, I won't even tell you the amount, but we decided on an amount of money that we were going to give toward the Christmas offering, and it was honestly more than what I felt like we could do, but this is what I felt like God was laying on my heart, and so we gave that in maybe the first or second week of December. And, and by the end of December, four times, four times, God had given us exactly <clears throat> what we put in in that Christmas offering. Four times by the end of December. It's just amazing the way that God works, you know? And that's, that's what it is, though. When you give to God, you can never outgive God. So the more stingy you are with holding on to, you know, tithes and offerings and those things, the more stingy, and I, and I, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but the more stingy God's going to be with us, you know? I mean, look what he says. You give, and it will be given unto you so much that... It's, and, and these go back, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. You know, they did everything that way back in the Bible times. Is, and that's, you know, they didn't have like one pound of, you know, sugar, right? But uh, you know how it is, like if you dump, uh, let's say you dump uh, some oats maybe into a cup. And if you just dump them into the cup, there's a lot of air in that cup too, right? But if you shake it, you press it down and shake it and press it down, you can fit a whole lot more in there. And that's exactly what God's talking about. You give to God, he's going to give back to you that same amount, but he's going to press it down, shake it, press it down, shake it, and give it back to you overflowing. That's, that's, that's the principle of you cannot outgive God. That's the principle in the Bible that he's talking about there. But, you know, when it comes to couples, we ought to discuss special offerings together. We ought to discuss our commitments that we're going to make to tithes and offerings. We ought to discuss our commitments that we're going to have toward uh, missions and all of those things. Uh, couples that have a heart for the eternal see the material blessings of God, not primarily as resources to increase their standing of living, but to be able to increase their standing of giving, th their standard of giving. That's the way that God gives to us. And boy, people who have a heart to give never want because God just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives back. And it's, it's just amazing to see how God works. You know, the root word for miserable is miser. That's exactly the way that it is in so many people's lives. People who are miserable are the ones that just hoard their money, hold on to it. That's why all these rich people, for the most part, are so miserable, you know, because they got all the money, and you look at their tax returns and stuff like that. I mean, you know, these politicians especially, because, oh, they're talking about how you ought to be giving money away to the poor and everything else. You see their tax returns, and they give 1000 bucks to, you know, here they are making $100 million, and they give $1,000 to charity this year, you know. Why? Why, are they, why does money not make them happy? Because they're hoarding it, and they're not giving it away. And giving to the work of God to meet the needs of others and, and to meet the needs of others are some of the most tangible ways that we can practice contentment. Here's number four, and that is enjoy. Sometimes, um, sometimes talking about budgeting and talking about giving makes people afraid that they're going to have to live a pinched, stingy life, you know? Well, if I have a budget, then I can't go buy the things that I want, and I'm going to have to pinch pennies and all of that kind of stuff. Actually, these practices free us to be able to do with our money uh, what God has given to us to do without putting our trust in that money, and he allows us to enjoy that money without having our trust in it, right? If we're trusting in God, 
then money can come and go. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter how much we hold on to. Money can come and go. God's going to keep providing for us. God's going to keep giving to us. And, you know, that's a very freeing thing. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Right? That's what God wants us. He wants us to enjoy life. Budgeting and avoiding a debt allows you to have that financial freedom that lets you enjoy the money that you do have for those things. Um, and using what God's given you to bless others allows you to enjoy uh, your blessing double. Uh, because not only is God going to give back to you, but you can be a blessing to other people at the same time. So go on a date night. Enjoy the provisions that God has given you. Just, you know, just thank him and bless him with what you do with that money and bless others with uh, what he's enabled you to do as well. And then the fifth thing that, is, um, that brings contentment is to save. Because as you make your budget, and as you, you know, make your financial decisions, it's wise to save. Now, it's, it's, there's a fine balance there because some people are so wrapped up in saving their money that they won't spend a penny on anything. You know, um, and the thing is that I, you know, I, I, I just, this is the way that I see it and what I've said all along is that God, you know, yes, we ought to be wise with our investments and we ought to be wise with, how we save for retirement, because there's going to come a day when we can't work uh, or don't want to, one of the two, and we need to have some money set aside for that retirement. But, but the people who pinch and save and put everything in a retirement account, by the time you get old enough to be able to retire, you can't really enjoy the money the way that you could, because now, you, most, uh, not always, but a lot of times, you know, people who pinch and scrounge and everything else to pack money away and pack money away and have a million dollars in a bank account. By the time they get to 70 years old when they retire, they're sick. They're spending all their time in the hospital, in and out with the doctors, and you can't even go enjoy it. You know, so uh, there, there, are, there are things, there are, there are certain things that, uh, certain ways and times that you should save, but then certain times that you should enjoy it as well. Look, my kids are only going to be young once. And if all I'm doing is packing, no, we can't go do that because I've got to save this money for my retirement. You can't go back and make memories with your kids, you know? You can't go back and enjoy the things that you can do when you have your health and when you have your energy, you know? So use that, you know? Use the money that God gives you. Save where you can, budget where you can, but don't just hoard everything so that, well, I've got to pack this away for retirement because one day, yes, one day. But look. God doesn't stop providing for you when you turn 70, right? If you've been faithful to give to God and to take care of him first and use the money that he's given you to enjoy with your family and doing things that, that uh, are making memories, God's going to continue to provide for you after you're 70 and 75 and 80 and 85. He can do that. So the Bible says in Proverbs 21, 20, there is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. Just because you have it now doesn't mean you need to spend it now. But, but, we should be saving, but we can spend some, and we can use some to make those memories. Um, the, the goal with all of your financial planning isn't to amass more wealth. It's to be a wise steward of the money that God has entrusted to us. And if God gives you a job where you can amass wealth, great. Set it aside, invest it, but then give to his work. Give to others. 
Use that to enjoy. Use it so that others can enjoy. What good does it do you to die with a million dollars in your bank account? Right? What good does it do you? Use it. Use the money. Yes, you have to. I mean, you might live to be 100 years old. And if that's the case, you know, well, you should have some money in those reserves. But, you know, uh, you don't get a reward for, for uh, ending life with a huge bank account. I believe, I think I, I mentioned this before. I think it was Jackie Chan. He's, a, he's a, um, uh, an actor or like a, like a martial arts guy or whatever else. I don't, I don't even know if I've ever seen any movie that he's in. But he said about his kids, he said, my kids are not getting one penny of the money that I have. Because number one, if I've raised them the right way, they can go out with the skills and the abilities that I've given them and make their own money. And if I haven't, then they're going to waste it anyway. That's, you know, I mean, okay, I don't know if I would say I'm not leaving you one penny, but it's true. And, and what is Jackie Chan going to do with all that money? You know, he's not passing it on to his kids. So he's going to die with 10 million in his bank account. What good does it do, you know? Um, so... Uh, this, this was pretty good. Um, this, this came from a book, and, and we'll end here. Dr. Richard Swenson uh, wrote a book called Contentment, and he told a story about a woman from New York City that was hosting uh, a Russian visitor in the 1980s. This is what the book said. They toured the Big Apple and saw the sights. The Russian visitor was unimpressed. We have tall buildings in Moscow, too. We have sports stadiums, too. On it went. Russia had subways, parks, plays, concerts, and ballet. Finally, exhausted from touring, they headed home. The host quickly ran into a supermarket to pick up a few items. The Russian lady entered the store, froze in her tracks, and then started sobbing. Not even in her wildest dreams had she imagined thousands of different food items in one place. Well, I think that's a great advertisement for communism and socialism and all of that, that kind of stuff because, I mean, they couldn't even imagine a grocery store. But we become so accustomed to the gifts that God gives us that we, we take them for granted a lot of times. Um, I mean, we were in Moldova, and, I mean, the store, the store in Moldova was probably what the one right down from the church in the village. The only store that they had in this whole village, by the way, was probably a quarter of the size of this auditorium, maybe, maybe a quarter of the size of this auditorium. We take for granted so much the things that God's given us, and we overlook those, the, the, just the lavish provisions that, God's, that God gives us. So in the process, we become prime targets for this tourist trap of discontentment. So how do we escape that trap? How do we live with a heart of contentment? The, the answer is very simple, and that is to give thanks. Give thanks. Just be thankful for everything that you have. If you're thankful for everything that you have, you'll never be ungrateful. You'll never be discontent. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Giving thanks frees our hearts from the um, distraction of comparison. Us from that lure of covetousness. We're all, we all see things in the world that we're like, boy, that'd be nice to have. Nothing wrong with that'd be nice to have, but covetousness turns into, uh, 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 that can very easily turn into covetousness. And that just, it just basically putting shackles on yourself. If you're thankful for what you have, 
You'll never be discontent. If you're thankful for everything that's God, that God's given you, then you'll see yourself as a steward. It's just on loan from God. Rush Limbaugh says that all the time, right? Talent on loan from God. Everything that we have is on loan from God. Our talents, our abilities, our property, our money, our kids, everything. It's all on loan from God. And, and if we look at it that way, then we'll have that gratitude. And gratitude is just expression of a contented heart. And that's what we ought to have. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the, uh, the principles that we have in the word of God. pray that you help each one of us to live lives that are content and, and lives that are grateful for everything that you've given us. Pray that you be with the service here in the next hour. Thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen.